grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Let us pray. Dear Lord, indeed it is a mighty task to speak and to reveal things that have been hidden since the beginning of time. And so we pray, Lord, that it not be a human voice, but your words, Lord, that remain in our hearts, and that you and you alone, Lord, would bring to revelation that which was hidden. <clears throat> May the words of my mouth, Lord, and meditations of all our hearts, O oh Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> uh, it's indeed wonderful to be able to be up here and to look down uh, at, at all of us here. I actually recognize that we do have quite a number of uh, people who are familiar yet not familiar. <laughs> they're familiar because they are members of family. They're not familiar because they are members of family probably coming back on holiday or visiting with friends. So welcome back if you're here uh, during this long holiday. Uh, indeed, good to see you. Today, I'm dealing with uh, a, a particular topic, which is uh, one uh, where Jesus uh, gives a whole series of parables about. It's on Matthew chapter 13. And uh, I hope uh, that if you have been following the uh, Own It 365 uh, NT Plus program, you should be right now in the book of Matthew and by the end of this year would have completed the entire reading of the New Testament. Some friends have come up and asked me, Pastor, are we doing something similar next year? Yes, we are, uh, but we're doing the Old Testament instead. And so after we cover the New Testament, we go into the New Testament. The only one I'm struggling with is whether we do only the Old Testament or the Old Testament and New Testament in one year. Uh, I have to challenge you to level up and see whether uh, you're up to that challenge. Now, I have this picture, the kingdom of heaven is like, and uh, when I first sent it to the office, the, oh no, the staff came to me, Pastor, your picture upside down. <laughs> Did you intentionally do this or what? I said, yeah, it's upside down. It's a picture of Penang City. Uh, if you haven't recognized it, there's Komta there and a few of our features there. It's like, wow, this fellow traitor or what? <laughs> no, but there is this sense that something is not right uh, about our world. Uh, and some people call it this particular problem about the existence of God and the problem of pain, suffering and evil. Now, I can't try and answer all this in a space of about 20, 30 minutes. Uh, but what I am going to do is give an answer or a response based on what Jesus actually tried to respond to. And his response, uh, you have to listen very carefully and hear because uh, a few times in these uh, parables, he says, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Uh, it's not just a matter of just uh, oral listening, but a listening with the spirit and with the heart. <clears throat> so today's topic I've titled, The Kingdom of Heaven is Like, because in all the parables, it begins with this, the kingdom of heaven is like this, and the kingdom of heaven is like that. But Jesus is in a way answering an age-old, ever since the beginning of time type question that revolves around this issue of, if there is a God, why does ex evil exist? If there is a God, and we presume that He is a good God, why does evil exist? And Jesus 
if you if you accept him as the son of God as well as the most brilliant mind that there ever was because it was a God and human mind uh, then he has an answer which in a way you have to dwell on and chew on which in a way answers many of the philosophers questions of the old one particular philosopher this guy called Epicurus <coughs> he had this uh, particular issue with God and you, you, you need to remember that the, in Greek mythology, the Greek gods were very fickle uh, and, and played around and toyed around with the lives of uh, human lives and they could never understand it. And so in their understanding, Epicurus asked this question, is God willing to prevent evil? But he's not able to. Then he is not omnipotent. If he's, is he able but not willing, then he is malevolent. Uh, is he both able and willing? If he is both able and willing, then where does evil come from? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? In various forms or otherwise, this is the question that many of our Christian friends uh, struggle with and many of the questions which the world struggles with. And so if you have your children going off overseas, in a way, uh, you need to equip them with the how to answer these type of questions. This is one of the things that I'm doing right now with my own son. After Form 5 finished SPM already, I gave him a book and said, okay, here's some of the reading stuff that you need to go to and talk about this. One of the books uh, that he's being asked to read is, is uh, by C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, you recall, is the guy who, who wrote the book uh, about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, uh, Aslan. And, and both C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were two contemporaries in uh, Oxford University uh, who spoke to each other very much about uh, life and Christianity and the problem of evil and pain. You have to recall they lived through the Second World War and C.S. Lewis himself uh, was married to a, a lady by the name of Joy who suffered cancer and eventually uh, passed away and he out of that grief he wrote this book called the problem of pain and this in chapter two of his book the problem of pain he wrote this if god were good he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy and if god were almighty he would be able to do what we wished what he wished but the creatures are not happy therefore god god lacks either goodness or power or both. This is the problem of pain in its simplest form. This is what C.S. Lewis says, and very similar to what Epicurus is saying. But within that, he, in a way, responds by uh, giving several answers to this problem of pain. One of the answers that is given and is uh, quoted by this professor is that evil is a deviation from the way things ought to be. Evil is a deviation from the way things ought to be. But there can't be a deviation from the way things ought to be unless there is a way. I hope you uh, can follow that argument. There, is, there can't be a deviation unless there is a way. There is a way that things ought to be. And there can't be a way things ought to be unless there is a design plan that says here's how things ought to be. And there can't be a design plan that says here's how things ought to be unless there is a designer 
who puts forth that design plan. This is by Professor Douglas Givett of Talbot School of Theology. Now, underlying all of this is to say that because pain is a problem, it presents that this problem is part of a solution. And if there is a solution, then there ought to be a God who is giving this solution. And logically, therefore, the problem of pain proves God or proves that there needs to be a God as opposed to there is no God at all. Now, counter-argument to this is if there is no God, if there is no God, then both good and evil are utterly random and normal and you shouldn't be surprised if you encounter pain. And therefore, pain should not be a problem because it is just part of this world. So C.S. Lewis's uh, answer to this particular issue of pain, evil, and uh, suffering is to point out that it doesn't, in a way, prove clearly the existence of God, but it gives the illusion that things are not the way it ought to be. And Jesus, in his own way, is responding to this issue about the kingdom of heaven and the existence of pain, evil, and suffering within this kingdom through these parables. I, I hope that by the end of this, I would not have utterly confused you. <laughs> now, Jesus gives a whole series of close to seven parables in chapter 13. Right? So if you want to understand what is the kingdom of heaven like and what Jesus means when he says, uh, the, the mystery of God revealed ever since creation till now, you therefore, in a way, have to kind of mull over this and chew over these parables. Parables are not uh, factual answers to a question. Uh, you know, you, you, you have people that talk about uh, uh, speed and accuracy. So if I'm traveling down to KL, what time would I arrive? And he says, well, if I travel down at this speed, at this consistency, and I don't make any pit stops along the way, I'll arrive uh, three hours from now. Okay, so that's a factual uh, point. But Jesus doesn't give those type of answers. He gives answers in the form of uh, parables that give you contrasting stories. Now, they are imaginary stories with real problems. Imaginary stories with real problems. And the punchline to those imaginary stories is always towards the end of that story. There is a tagline, what we call the end stress. And so he begins with the first story, with the parable of the sower. Now, all four Gospels have the parable of the sower. And so it is one of the primary means by which Jesus speaks about his kingdom. All four of them have it. Then the parable of the wheat and the weeds is the second one. Right? Equally large, but what's interesting about the parable of the wheat and the weeds is that Jesus actually explains the parable of the wheat and the weeds. In fact, if you look at most of his parables, he normally doesn't explain them except for the first two. The first two, he actually explains in detail what he means. Then comes the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast, uh, parable of the hidden treasure, parable of the pearl, and finally the parable of the net. Uh, apologize if the color doesn't come out so well. But the reason why I put the colors is because uh, the reddish-brown ones, the parable of the wheat and the weeds and the parable of the net are very similar. They both talk about 
the kingdom of heaven existing with both good and bad. And that at the end of the age, uh, the, uh, there is a harvest or there is a collection or a gathering and there is a division between the two. The parable of the mustard seed and the yeast are similar in the sense that something so small, itty bitty stuff, works through an entire uh, big uh, batch of dough or from a small seed grows into a big tree. And the hidden treasure and the pearl talk about the priceless value of the kingdom and to some extent the cost of discipleship. There are similarities in the parable, but all those similarities stem from a first beginning about the parable of the sower and the seed. So one of the things that is revealed in the kingdom of heaven, the secret that has been revealed since the beginning of time, is essentially the word of God that is planted. This very word that is put there is the beginning of the seed of the kingdom of God that has been hidden since the beginning of time and that is now rising up through the ground and will continue growing. Now I've put here a series of pictures, uh, the sowing and the seed, the distribution of the seed, the wheat and the weeds. Uh, wheat and taras is the actual Greek word that is given. Uh, the seed, the sesame seed, small little tiny seed that grows into a big tree or a, a sizable tree, about six to seven feet tall. A batch of yeast, really small, that works through, uh, and the NIV 2011 version puts you as 60 kilograms worth of flour. I mean, have you ever thought about it? There's a small little bit of yeast, given enough time, will work through an entire batch of flour, and, and then the pearl, this priceless pearl, the hidden treasure, and finally, the separation of the fish. Do you ever spend time mulling over these parables and chewing on it? Because when Jesus tries to describe the kingdom of heaven is like, he uses these image, these images, and they mean different things at different times. <clears throat> Let's open our text and we look at this. Uh, verse 31, uh, sorry, verse 24. Jesus told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. Owner's servants came and said to him, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the seeds come from? Now he goes through all of this and he gives an analogy which all of them are familiar with, planting of the seeds. So one of the things that we need to ask ourselves is what of which, what of that picture and image seems natural? What of it seems unusual in the way they would understand it at that time? Yes, it's common that you plant seeds. No, it's not uncommon that your enemy comes and wastes time basically planting seeds, uh, planting weeds in the middle of the night. This is really an evil guy who wants to destroy you and he does this in the darkness. Yes, it's common that the servants come and find the seed having grown. So at the point when the wheat grows and the wheat grows, wheat and terrace look very similar. The only time when you actually notice the difference is when they begin to bear fruit. And you remember all this while, all the parables have always been, all the warnings that Jesus gives is, you will know them by their fruit. 
They look exactly the same, they grow the same, but the moment when it's time for uh, the wheat to bear fruit, the wheat will bear a, a, a richer yield. Uh, the terrace looks like wheat, but you know that these are actually weeds. So the servants notice this and they come back to uh, the master and they ask the master, should we go and do the weeding? Now, this is where it differs because uh, some of you are gardeners and some of you actually do know what a farm might look like and uh, might have actually gone to a paddy field. Uh, and it is not uncommon that you would actually either spray pesticide or uh, herbicide or, or some form of control in order to get rid of weeds or to do physical weeding itself. And so here's where the tension begins. The servants go and tell the master. The master says, no, let them grow together. Now, for those of them first hearing this, it would be, hey, that's very odd because if there were weeds in this particular plot, I would go and pull it out. But the master gives the reason because once you pull it out, uh, those wheat will die. When you pull it out, it will pull other things. Now, just uh, follow the text. Verse 29, no, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, which is not long after. Okay. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Now, is it, is it agreed amongst them? Yes, that if I pull the, 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 the weeds out, that some of the wheat will also come out. Yes, they understood it. But what is not common to them is it's okay to sacrifice a few of these stalks of uh, wheat as long as I get rid of the weeds because the weeds might grow even more. And so for them, yeah, I know what you're saying is right, that once the wheat and the weeds grow, the bundle of roots are so closely knit together that they become like one. And if you were to pull some weeds out, it would automatically pull out some wheat as well. But the common thinking at that time is, it's okay, I pull this weed out, a few of my wheat die, it's fine. That's okay. But this, this master, on the other hand, says, no, my approach is not that. I want to leave it there, let them grow together. Now, the other thing which is also uncommon here is that if I have my field... Uh, I would normally ask my servants to also be the harvesters. But in this case, the harvesters and the servants are two separate people. And Jesus explained this, explains this in his explanation itself. Now, after this, Jesus talks about this parable of the mustard seed and the yeast. Uh, and in both situations, he says, again, things that somehow turns this world upside down. That the kingdom of God enters into this world like a small thing. Smallest of the garden uh, plants or garden seeds, uh, yeast, a small bit works out an entire dough. But the kingdom grows very small, but eventually works through entirely works through everything that it has in order to transform. Again, the mystery that is being revealed in this parable here is that the kingdom doesn't 
come with big fanfare and big things. It comes in small things. Then there is this segue where uh, <coughs> in verse 34, uh, Jesus says, he spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Now this is a throwback to Isaiah. And in the prophecy of Isaiah, God commissions uh, Isaiah to go out and to be his voice. But when Isaiah says, here I am, send me, God says, I am sending you to this people. But the more you speak, the more hardened their hearts will be. And the more you reveal to them, the less they will understand. In fact, they will basically be opposed to you. Now, those are, a, you know, most depressing thing that a prophet would hear. Or any pastor you know, can you imagine I get sent off to a church and God decides to say to me, it's like, you're going to this church, you're going to preach what I tell them. But every time you preach it, their hearts will be even harder. That your work will not bear fruit. Wow. <laughs> Have you ever seen a situation where God says, the work that you will do will not bear the kind of fruit that you are expecting? And so these things are hidden except to those who have, a hear, uh, have an ear to hear. So out of this, we have to ask these questions. Are we really hearing the message of God that has been hidden all this while? The truth about the kingdom of God that has been hidden? Or are we trying to hear only the things that we want to hear that encourage us, not in accordance to what God wants to tell us, but what we ourselves want to hear then having done that the parable of the weeds is explained they come uh, he left the crowd went into the house his disciples came to him and said explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field so even his disciples although they kind of understood roughly had to ask him explain clearly uh, what you meant out of this then he answered the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. And the weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Now I summarized it there. You can fill in the blanks in case you're half asleep by now. But the point about all of this is he has explained all these things in order for them to clearly see what is happening. Now again, remember that he begins his parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Right? Uh, some people have asked me, um, in other gospels, right, uh, they use the kingdom of God is like this. Why does Matthew use the kingdom of heaven? Remember, Matthew is a Jew, Right? He's a tax collector. He's writing particularly to Jews who would, under, who would understand him. And the Jews do not like to use the word God. So rather than use the term God, they use the kingdom of heaven, and therefore they are interchangeable. But hear this. 
Jesus' answer about the, uh, the problem of pain, suffering and evil is that the kingdom of heaven exists with both of them in the same sphere. That in this world, the kingdom of heaven has both good and evil together. Now, for some people, that's like, huh? I thought kingdom of heaven, only good people. Well, there is a arrival here, but not yet here. There will be a time when the kingdom of heaven where no good, uh, sorry, no evil is ever allowed into the situation. But the kingdom of heaven has been established where Christ is king and the boundary has been defined that those who hear God's word or where, where the word of God is preached, there the kingdom of heaven has arrived and the citizens are those who hear and obey and bear fruit. So the kingdom of heaven is there, but it exists together with evil. And that evil, according to Jesus, is put in by the devil. Now, uh, many people have often spoken this parable about the church, but I would like to point out here that Jesus himself says that the kingdom of heaven and his description is the field, is the world. It's not a specific injunction about the church, but I would dare venture that those within the church sometimes look also like weeds. Lah. They look like wheat, but they're weeds. They produce nothing. So, God sows this good seed. The field is this world. Uh, the good seed, people of the kingdom. Uh, the weeds, people of the evil one. That, so, the evil one himself gives rise and causes these people to grow. And the enemy is the devil. And the harvest is at the end of the age. And the harvester are angels. Angels who are called forth to eventually draw these things together. Now, how does that work with you? That in all these philosophical questions and discussions about the presence of evil in our life, Jesus' answer is that the kingdom of heaven nonetheless is here. That it exists even in the presence of people doing their darnest best to do that which is evil. And that it continues to work. Is that Jesus' only answer? And I think ultimately that is not his final answer. Ultimately, his final answer is that the kingdom of heaven is existing together with evil, but God is with us. That's the whole theme of Emmanuel. The whole point about it is not only is he with us, that God is with us in our messes, that he is journeying with us through our pain, and not only that, that he himself goes through this pain. Does it make any difference to you? Well, as a parent, as a father myself, I know that it does mean something to me. You know, as a father, as a, as a parent, you have children, and for a period of time when the children are going, you are like God on earth for them. When they're hungry, you feed them. When they're naked, you clothe them. When they need shelter, you put something over them. And it's as if you can do no wrong. You can tell them the world is flat and they will believe you. 
until they hit six, seven years old, and they go to kindergarten, and then the kindergarten teacher tells them, no, the world is round. But you, until that period of time, you are the sole authority. But one of the things that we have to deal with at some point in time as a parent is that our child will go out and will encounter bullies, <laughs> evil people, or evil men and women who will inflict violence on them. And you can do nothing about this. Why? Because other people have inflicted a choice in the way they live their lives that has affected you. Their weeds are choking you and may even destroy you. But God has chosen that way because He doesn't want to lose any of the wheat. Because in doing this, the moment that he starts weeding, it's time to harvest everything. And so for a period of time, the weeds are allowed to exist in order for uh, the formation of the character of the people. Now I find this is difficult. It is difficult to believe and understand this even now, even harder when you yourself or your children are going through evil, suffering, and pain. So it's best that those who have ears to hear listen to it while they have the ability to hear and it becomes a part of them. That they understand this whole idea of pain. How do I cope with pain and suffering? And we all have a coping mechanism. We need to. Uh, particularly in situations like uh, doctors and pastors where daily you are having to confront people who have gone down their way and choose to do evil. It can be very depressing if you're in a work environment or in your school or in your uh, church. When you are working all the way out and you're trying to weed out evil and you see that it keeps on growing, that you feel, I'm not doing my work, I need to work harder, I need to do all these things. Until the realization comes that this will continue till the end of time. That the work of evil will continue till the end of time and the kingdom of God still nonetheless exists. That whilst I am pursuing this whole idea that, oh, I must form my best dream team, get rid of the people who are not those who belong, we then have to take a page from what Jesus did. And what Jesus had, whom he chose himself, were the twelve, one of whom would have betrayed him, and all of whom would have abandoned him. What does it mean for you to understand that evil will continue to exist in your environment? That God has allowed it? Does it mean, therefore, God doesn't care for me because he has not removed this pain? and this evil. But God has already said that's not what He's going to do. So what did He say He would do? He said He would be with us. And as a parent, that's the only thing that I can do for my children. That when they go through pain, when they fall off their bicycle, or when someone bullies them, it's not for me to go out on the war path and destroy the other kid and the other family but it's for me to talk to my child and say, it's okay, you learn to forgive. 
Because in all of this suffering, evil and trial, the formation of who we are becomes a crucial part of who we are to be in Christ. And we learn this from the example of Christ who himself suffered on the cross and demonstrated his character. Dallas Willett had this amazing thing to say, uh, which only recently dawned on me, that Jesus did all these miracles that he healed people. But one miracle that he did, he never did, one miracle that Jesus never did was to heal people of their character flaws. He never dealt with their character flaws. That, he left it to them to say, abide in me. Remain in me. And I will help you deal with this character flaws. Because you see, these character flaws are formed through suffering and pain. They are healed through our suffering and pain. Just think about it. You want to be more loving? You grow more love by having to love people who are difficult. You want to grow more patient? You grow by having to deal with people who test your patience and forces you to exercise it more. I used to think of this in such a way that I used to tell myself, man, I better be careful what I ask for. Lord, give me more patience. Then he sends more people who will test your patience. Charmer. In all our difficulties and strife, the ability to persevere is the very thing that shapes our character and forms us. Let me bring you finally to these three points that I always ask you to think about. <clears throat> Are you frustrated that God would allow evil to exist? That bad things happen? That suffering is a part of your life? Many of us are, you know, you, you go to your workplace and you get upset when your colleague does something which you find, like, what is wrong with you? Many people leave the church because they say, I come to the church, I expect to see Christians who are willing to die on the cross and instead they crucify people. And then they leave the church. The kingdom of heaven which is supposed to be seen by the body of Christ, exists with both good and evil. And he does not rip out people just like that so that uh, it can be sorted out. One of my most difficult situations when I wrestle with ethical issues and moral issues which the church does, and this has happened not in this church but elsewhere, one, one family came uh, and there was a conflict. Uh, husband had had an affair, was committing adultery with another uh, woman. The family came and asked and talked about this and says, what do we do? He's having an affair and he was in denial mode. No, no, this is just my friend. We just hang out a lot. You know. There's very little that you can do to hide things when the person that you say is just a friend is now pregnant with your kid. This was months after he had been confronted with the situation. Now, church discipline would normally be you are having an affair, you are not complying with what we are asking you to do to be reconciled with your wife and to stop this thing. Therefore, normally church discipline is 
we ask you to leave the church. But the problem with this was, if we had gone down this path and say, leave the church because you are committing adultery and going against the ways of, of God, he had three children who were in Sunday school. He had a wife who was still coming to church. And he had relatives who were still coming. The moment you say to him, leave the church, these three kids would never come to this church anymore and he would not go to any other church because he knew once he was kicked out of the church, the whole community would hear about this. You take out one weed and all these others will be affected. Now, this doesn't mean we say carry on, do what you want. Nowhere in this. We made his life difficult. And our friend was difficult. He came one day and says, Pastor, David had so many wives. Solomon had so many wives. I, one extra cannot. <laughs> Malaysia, four wives can. I said, that is not the way God designed it. Adam and Eve, one. Till death do they part. One. Not four. None of these particular ways. And we had to wrestle with it. And that wrestling with it formed the character of the church. Because they said, wow, I, we have to confront him. And the men got together and the ladies got together and we said, we have to deal with this. Evil, suffering, pain are all a part of the things that form us, that force us to make a decision that then says, do you take the easy way or do you follow Christ? Was it frustrating? Yes. But we console our fact that the kingdom of God is like this. And God uses these situations, uncomfortable, awkward, painful. Now I say this in a very simple situation, but I can also imagine that if you live in the US and you're one of these churches where you've had a gunman come in and shoot and kill people or rape your daughter or your wife, they become harder questions to answer. But the answer is still the same that the kingdom of God still continues to grow and live through this, and that God, Emmanuel, is still the light in our darkest corners. And he himself has gone through it. His body was brutalized, he was left bleeding, he was betrayed by all peoples. So my theology is supported by the fact that God does not live in comfort himself, he is in the mess with me. Would I want a father like that? Definitely. It's not a father who can protect me and put a force field around me all the time, but one who has said, life is tough, but I will not leave you nor abandon you. I am with you. And I have gone through it myself. It is a part of your formation. Because Christ learned obedience and he completed his faith by his obedience even unto death through evil men, through suffering on the cross. So will you trust his timing and his judgment? Secondly, the state of being and becoming. You are a human being, not a human doing. In your state of being, will you have ears to really listen to what God is saying about the kingdom of heaven? Not what you want to hear out of it. 
but what God is telling you. And will you hear now? Not when you're going through a crisis and all you want to hear is, let me out of this pain. Will you take time to dwell on these messages and this text? Are you putting Jesus' words into practice in your doing, in the listening of all these things? As you encounter difficulties in your workplace, in your uh, school, college, are you very much like the world saying, I want to rip these weeds out. I want to get rid of these people. Or are you like Christ talking about the situation where let me learn to persevere through this and deal with it God's way. Eventually, the harvest will come. God's judgment will come. And in His time, He alone will judge who is the weed and who is the wheat. Let me also end with this one thought. We always think about others as being the weed. Have you ever thought that maybe you are that weed? Because what you desire for others, if it happens to them, will also happen to you. When I look at myself and I know who I am, I know I'm one of the biggest weeds there are around. Outside, look very nice, very holy, got collar, prayer, <laughs> fasting and all that stuff. But deep in my heart, I know how much weeds there are and there's a lot of work that God needs to do to sort that out. The very thing that you desire judgment on others, you call upon yourself. This is what the parable goes about as well. If you, having been forgiven so much, are unable to forgive others, if you, having received so much, wish judgment on others, death, condemnation, rip them out, you call that upon yourself. So will we practice this thing? A patient resilience to turn the other cheek, to walk the extra mile, to have the attitude of Christ in how we deal with others. Again, it's not easy. I'm not asking you to be a doormat, but I'm asking you to take on the nature of Christ. Shall we pray? Oh Lord, you are Emmanuel, our God with us. You exist with us in all the mess that we have, in all the difficulties and the weeds that lie in our own hearts, in, our, in, the, in the places of our work, in all the things that surround us, Lord. And you turn our world upside down, Lord, when you tell us that the kingdom of heaven is like nothing that we have seen. Be the mystery revealed in us, Lord, the Word of God alive in us, transforming our hearts, breaking down the strongholds in our minds that causes us to find life and life to the full and living in this world that is so upside down. Give us the ability, O Lord, to see you and to persevere in doing what is right and true. And may your grace, Lord, abide in us even as you reveal yourself through us. This we ask, Lord, even as we commit ourselves to you in love and peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.